With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more. Right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Hi, I'm Ron Barr, and this is today's edition of Ron Barr's Sports Byline USA podcast on the 8-Side Network. Mookie Wilson joins us on Sports Byline. He played 12 years in the major leagues, most of those for the New York Mets, but also finished up with Toronto, and he has written a wonderful book that I want you to check out. It's called simply Mookie Life, Baseball, and the 86 Mets. Mookie, I'm going to talk about the book in a second, but, you know, you were a switch hitter, and I think anybody that played baseball can't imagine what that's like or how one becomes proficient at that. Uh, I wonder if you can give me some insight in how you became a switch hitter and how hard or easy it was for you. Well, uh, first of all, becoming a switch hitter is, is, is not an easy task. <laughs> you know, it takes a lot more work than um, someone would imagine. You know, it looks like it's easy, but it's very, very difficult to try to stay uh, very efficient on, on, on two sides of the plate when you have limited time to work. Um, I actually became a switch hitter by accident. Um, spring training, um, one spring, uh, I think it was spring of 1980. Uh, I just um, was a little upset that I wasn't playing in spring training, so I kind of walked in the manager's office and um, kind of said, I, you know, you're going to send me down anyway, so I want to go down and learn how to switch hit. And the manager was your tour, and he said, um, okay. You know, so it, you know, it was a bold move on my part. Um, at the time, I thought it was a mistake, but as it turned out, it worked out. So it's really was by accident. It's nothing that I had planned over the whole period of time. Is it more mental than it is physical being a switch hitter? No, it's, it's definitely physical because uh, you have to learn how to, you know, track balls from both sides of the plate, um, learn to break his breaks oh, no, from the left side to the right side. You know, it's, it's more physical because you have to – Find out where you are, you know, as in opposed to which strike zone is. You know, you have to develop a stride. You have to develop a swing. Everything, you just have to start from scratch is what it is. I would also think it would be pretty hard for pitchers facing a switch-hitting Mookie Wilson because he comes up right-handed one time and he can throw something, and if he comes up left-handed the other time, he, <laughs> he mostly tends to make a mistake somewhere along the line either side you're, you're hitting from. Yeah, it, you know, it, it seems like it would be. Um, and some pitches are more, you know, efficient, you know, to certain sides of the plate. So, you know, if a guy, you know, can't throw a ball to the outside part of the plate or anything of that nature, then you can always, you know, turn over. So it, it's an advantage, but it, it's not very easy to do. I'm not that there are very few successful fish hitters in Major League Baseball in the history of the game, actually. Let me talk about the book, Mookie, Life Baseball in the 86 Mets. I sense that this was a way for you to kind of set the record straight maybe and also dig deeper into the things that happened to you along the way in your life as well as your career and maybe put a perspective on it. Am I correct in that assumption? Oh, you're absolutely correct. And I, you know, I then when I 
was writing the book, I was hoping that people will get this message, you know, that, you know, life is not all peaches and cream. You know, you have some adversities that you have to go through sometime in order to be successful. Um, you know, and some things are not very pleasant, but, um, you know, for us to grow sometimes, we have to endure those things. And um, people know me as a player, but not many people know me as a person and how I got where I am, uh, what I had to endure. And I was hoping that the book would give some insight to who Mookie Wilson really is. Yeah, another thing that I thought was the perception that since you grew up in rural South Carolina, in a very intolerant time in this country, back in the 1960s, your dad was a sharecropper, and, and I suppose all of that kind of steeled you for the challenges you would have going forward in life, particularly when you're in a, a business slash baseball and entertainment form in which uh, one day you're going to go three for three, the next day you're going to have to go oh three uh, for three and be able to maintain some type of balance. You know, it has. I think my upbringing really helped um, because I've had to, you know, you know, go through a lot of things that, you know, unpleasantries. I had to go through a lot of disappointments, you know, and, and baseball, let's face it, you're going to be disappointed a lot. There's a lot of failure involved. And you have to be strong mentally to succeed in this game. And I, I think a lot of guys um, fail in the game because they're just not accustomed to dealing with failure. You know, um, and disappointments, they're used to having their way and doing what they like. And um, my growing up, you know, in the South, in the turbulent times during the Civil Rights Movement, wasn't always, didn't have the freedom to do as I want, and say as I want, go as I want, wanted to go. So um, I was used to disappointments and learning how to handle it. So it definitely was an advantage. Tell me about one of those disappointments or one of those challenges that you had when you were young. Well, growing up, um, you know, wasn't able to go to um, restaurants. And the one thing we did go to, we had to go and be served by the back door. Um, then going to regular doctors, you go to uh, the back door. There was a, a room for, you know, white people. And there was a room for colored people, <laughs> you know, that type of thing. I've actually gone to restaurants and they get served and they end up leaving. So, you know, that's the kind of stuff that you go through. And, and you know, you, you kind of, you know, try to keep it in perspective. When you're young, you don't really understand it. Because you you would like to think that everyone is equal, but you know you learn quickly that that wasn't the case. You know, one of the things I've always respected about you, Mookie, even when I interviewed you when you were playing baseball and everything, is is that you never had a a negative attitude, and yet you went through a lot of things when you were young, as you just talked about, that would make a lot of people angry and cynical. What kept you from becoming angry and cynical? You know, I, I think growing up, and, and my father was a very, um, you know. Wise person, I, you know, I, I, you know, he really, you know, taught us to, you know, everyone should be judged on his own merit. And I've had a lot of people, um, you know, to, to, to kind of help me along the way. And I, I've met some really, really good people, um, both white and black, you know, that was, you know, have really contributed to that. And, uh, you know, I have to thank my father for helps me to understand that every person is different. You don't judge a whole race of people by one person, and uh, it really has helped me over the years. What was it that your dad loved about the game? Because he taught you the game that would eventually change your life. Was he someone that was uh, uh, familiar to a great deal with the old Negro Leagues and some of the stars of those leagues? Uh, no, he wasn't. He was a baseball, you know, he, he loved baseball. And um, I, I think he kind of grew up in New York. Well, I say grew up. He spent some time in New York in the Brooklyn area, so he was a baseball, you know, fanatic, you know. 
Um, he never talked about a lot of the old, you know, baseball players that he knew or anything of that nature. But he just loved playing the game, and he kind of passed that down to us. And um, he had a passion for it. I, I say love is probably understated. He had a passion for the game. He was a really, really good catcher. And um, he wasn't as technical as, you know, he was all about the, the mental aspect of the game. It's just how you approach it. And that is one thing that I learned over the years because, look, I was the most technical hitter in the world. You have, no, you've seen me play. So. <laughs> but it was all about fun, and I, and I think that that helped me more than anything. Yeah, but you had a flair about it, Mookie. I mean, let's be honest about it. Did he ever, <laughs> did he ever say anything to you about Jackie Robinson? No, he probably everybody talks about Jackie Robinson. Okay, I mean, but he didn't, um, you know, not to a whole point as you know Jackie Robinson being, you know, leading the way for other African Americans and stuff. He never got into that a whole lot, you know. He was just he just loved baseball, but he loved good baseball players, and um, he kind of you know helped us and helped us to understand that you know the game is to be played a certain way. You know, and he he didn't look at whether it was Jack Robinson or, or Carl Uskrinski or anybody that nature. It was just playing the game. You you came up with the Mets, of course, uh, in 1980. But what were those years like? Those days like before you finally got the call up to the big club? Man, playing in minor leagues is tough. I mean, long bus trips. You know, um, you know, you're really scrapping from you know to survive on the road. And when you have a family, it's even tougher. You know, uh, you don't get the meal money like they do today. I think they get like a hundred something bucks a day for meal money, big leagues, and that kind of stuff. Well, we were we were getting like four bucks a day and that kind of stuff. It, it, it was tough. It, it really tests tests your patience and your discipline and, and how much you wanted it. And I think the Bond leagues was really good for building character. And the ones that survived the Bond leagues usually do well, you know, in the major leagues, particularly ones that's been in the Bond leagues for you know a period of time. And I was down there for four years. Uh, were you one of those people that they just had a label on, can't miss, will be brought up, or did you have to really work hard to make it to the majors? Oh, no, I had to work hard. You know, you, you, know, you had to work, and there, there were just so many people, you know, um, that was out there. The competition was, was stiff, and I was self-taught as far as all the things I did with hitting. We didn't have, you know, hitting instructors, stuff like they do now. So, no, it's no such thing as, uh, you know, a can't, can't miss guy. No, that wasn't the case. Tell me about the when you got told that you were coming up to the major leagues. Uh, it was in 1980 after the season ended in um, Tidewater. Tidewater at the time, the Tidewater Tides. And um, we were on. We were finishing up at home. And um, after the game, the manager called me in the office and, and said, um, you know, you go and meet the club in, in L.A., you know, that you've been called up. Uh, total, a total shock. Um, because, you know, from the spring training that I had, I, would, I didn't do any playing in the whole spring, so I didn't know if I was on the radar at that point. But uh, that was when I first got the call, and it was, I think I was more nervous than anything else. I mean, here you are, you work hard to get the big leagues, and then when you get the call, you don't know what you're going to do, how you're going to do so. You don't know if you're ready. Now, there's some question marks for we're talking with Mookie Wilson, and I want you to check out this book. It's an excellent read. It's called Mookie Life, Baseball, and the 86 Mets. And as I mentioned, he landed at Shea Stadium in 1980, and the Mets were a perennial cellar dweller overshadowed by the crosstown New York Yankees. We'll talk about that as we continue on Sports Byline. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. In the 1980s and 90s, New York City needed a tough cop like Detective Louis Scarcella. Putting bad guys away. There's no feeling like it in the world. He was the guy who made sure the worst killers were brought to justice. That's one version. This guy is a piece of shit. Derek Hamilton was put away for murder by Detective Scarcella. In prison, Derek turned himself into the best jailhouse lawyer of his generation. And law was my girlfriend. This is my only way to freedom. Derek and other convicted murderers started a law firm behind bars. We never knew we had the same cop in the case. Scarcella. We got to show that he's a corrupt cop. They can go themselves. I'm Steve Fishman. And I'm Dax Devlin-Ross. And this is The Burden. Listen to new episodes of The Burden on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And to hear episodes one week early and ad-free with exclusive bonus content, subscribe to True Crime Clubhouse on Apple Podcasts. You're listening to Ron Barr's Sports Byline USA podcast. Mookie Wilson has joined us on Sports Byline. The name of his book is called Mookie Life, Baseball, and the 86 Mets. 1980, you come up to Shea Stadium. Tell me about the first time you walked into that stadium as a major leaguer. Well, uh, yeah, walking into Shea Stadium, it was huge. <laughs> I mean, there's a very big place. Uh, you know, just so many people, you know, screaming. And, you know, that the Mets, like I said, were cell dwellers at that time, so it wasn't a whole lot of excitement going on. Um, as far as the club winning and anything of that nature. But, um, you know, there, there was still some excitement toward the end of the year. It's always excitement. You have young guys coming up. And, um, you know, I was one of them, so the people were really cheering. They were curious, I think, to see who who I was and what I was really to do. And, you know, it was just scary. It's scary. We're talking 50,000 people. You know, I've never seen that many people in the ballpark before, so... It, it was a kind of frightening and intimidating. Did you feel like uh, you guys were the poor sisters of the of the town with the Yankees and, of course, the flash and dash that went along with them along, you know, as long uh, as they had all those championships? Did you feel like that when you came up? Uh, did you sense that the club felt that way? Well, it was no question about it. The, the Mets were the, the, the little brothers. <laughs> you know, no, that's what we were. No, no one was talking about the Mets. So it was all about the Yankees at the time. It was their town. And... um but coming up, I had other things on my mind, really. And that was just like going out and trying to, you know, show that I belonged. And, and I think that was more important to me than worrying about either cross-town rivals or, you know, trying to be, trying to gain a position within the city. So that wasn't even a concern of mine at the time. What were the Mets like when you came up? Terrible. <laughs> <laughs> it was just, it was a bad, bad ball club. I mean, there's no other way to put it. No, we just, it, no, it, it just wasn't very talented, you know. But um, you know that we were the beginning of the of the change for that club, and um, I was glad to be a part of it. But it was it was miserable. 
it, it was really, really miserable at that time. You mentioned about the, how the stadium was. I know in talking uh, to Duke Snyder, I asked him once to take me on a sight, sound, and smell tour of uh, Ebbets Field. And it was just fascinating to hear him talk about being out there and what he sensed and what he felt from the fans and the stadium itself. What was it like uh, for you, and what were the Mets fans really like? Yeah, the Mets fans actually were really kind of – it was exciting because um, at that time of the year, I, um, you know, they were already out of it. They were probably out of it in, you know, in July, really, if they couldn't think about it. But they were, you know, it was just exciting that people yelling and, and, and screaming at every – play every pitch, you know, and I think that, um, you know, we kind of had an immediate relationship. It was myself and, like, Hubie Brooks, you know, we came up together, and, and the people, like, really embraced us, and that that made us feel really good. It kind of took a lot of pressure off. I didn't feel like we had to go out and get, get four hits a game, and that's for sure. When did things change for the Mets? Things started to change, like, um, the end of 83. You know, I think things really start to change. Um, we started, we were still losing games, but we were competitive. We were in games that we had an opportunity to win. And that's when things started. You could see a change then, but um, 81, 82 oh, was, was off. It was just like, you know, we just celebrated if we didn't lose on the ball game. That's, that's what our celebration was. <laughs> and, and was it because of the talent that you were getting or the talent and the manager that you had? Well, it was the talent that was coming up. We had some very, very good young ball players coming up, and you could see it. Most of us, we played together in double-A AA and triple-A, so we knew each other. It was much more uh, relaxing, too, because we were all, like, in the same boat. It's not like a young guy coming up with a uh, you know a team full of veterans. It's a lot of young guys. So it was, it was, it was really easy for us, and we could see the difference in attitude of the club changing. Yeah, and who were some of the players that came up with you? Oh, like I said, it was Huey Brooks, myself. We had Jesse Orozco. Uh, we had Mike Scott. Um, we had, uh, who was the other guys? Uh, Scott Holman. Uh, Wally Backman came up later. Uh, we had um, Kevin Chapman. Uh, we had Alex Trevino. He was a catcher. He had got caught a little earlier. Uh, they were just, just a, a bunch of guys. And who were the guys that consisted of the scum bunch? <laughs> Oh man, that's a good question. There were quite a few guys could be listed in that, you know, in that area, you know. But um, you know, you had guys. It was no secret. You had guys like um, uh, Wally Backman, Danny Heap. Um, uh, we had Jesse. We had oh, just a ton of ton of guys. I mean, it's well documented, you know. And then I think anybody that was with them that day was considered scumbags. I think at some point all of us might have been considered part of scumbags, particularly when it's like St. Louis and. In Houston and Chicago. And what was it that they did, Mookie, that got them that name? Well, you know, you know if it, I, there's other books out, and I think what happened was them guys were, you know, they, you know, they went out at night, you know, and and they were just, you know, they, they were themselves, and you know, they really wasn't very, what well, how you say it, um, they weren't choir boys. Let's put it that way. <laughs> so, so. <laughs> So people just gave them that name, you know, and it really was a name of that was given, but they didn't take that name, you know, for anything malicious, or anything. It just was their personalities, what it was. Well, certainly ran in New York with the Yankees the same way with yeah. some of the personalities that they had. Let's go to the uh, part of the book I think a lot of people will be interested <laughs> in. You part of the title, the '86 Mets, and of course that was an incredible World Series, and I think everybody remembers where they probably were if they were watching Game Number Six 
of the 86 World Series because that was one of the key moments in the outcome of that. And I'm just wondering, as you and Bill Buckner, who have remained close as friends and had a chance to talk about that game number six and the key moment in it, has time changed your opinion of it, about why it happened, what happened, uh, and everything with the moment where the ball went through his legs? Yeah. You know, it's been a while now, and, you know, the more you think about it and you look at the videos and, and all of that, nothing has changed. I you know I don't think they talk about a lot of things that went on, um, but, you know, all they talk about is the ground ball, and, and that's about it. But a lot of things happen, you know, in that series, you know, with the guys, you know, pitchers unable to get the last out when having two strikes on, on four, four hitters, as a matter of fact. You know, and you know the wild pitch and all that thing, but nothing has changed. I, I think it's been pretty well documented, and people have talked about it. And um, but not, you know, you look at it tomorrow; it was going to be the same. You know, it, and the results always turn, turn out the same. Yeah, you know, it was a wild pitch that allowed the uh, tying run to score in the bottom of the tenth inning, and then the ground ball later at that same at bat went through the legs of uh, Bill Buckner. And and yeah, I know that. Professionals play hard, but at some point, was there some empathy on your part about Bill Buckner and what he had had happen to him and what he was going to have to endure from that point on? You know, initially, um, you know, it, you, you can't help but feel bad because we understand, as players, we understand that when even when you're giving your best sometimes, it just things just go bad. You know, you, you, you miss plays, you miss a, a pitch you should have hit, you you make a bad throw on a very easy play and that type of stuff. So we understand that it all happens. But on a stage like the World Series in New York and, you know, the scrutiny that he had to endure over the years, yeah, I, you know, I felt bad for him earlier. But as we just talked about it more and more over the years, um, I realized that he that's the last thing he wanted or needed. And uh, uh, he understands, you know, what happened and – no one should have to go through some of the stuff that he's gone through, but he understands why, and he's past that now, and he's very open. He's very candid conversation about the whole thing now, so that uh, that's good. You know, it was a seven-game series, so while you can point to a key play that led to the victory in one of those games, they had to do something right. Uh, the Mets had to do something right to have won four games. Was there any other moment in, in that series that you consider as a ball player and being in that series was key? I think when we one of the key things we did is uh, as we lost the first two games, you know, at Shea Stadium going to Boston and not having that workout. That was a bold move on the manager's part. I think we needed that to recharge ourselves. We wasted a lot of energy uh, when we played Houston, and I think that we just kind of, you know, we were, we were wasted mentally. And I think that that helped get us a world good to get away from the game. Because we didn't, it's not we lost two games, but not because we didn't play well. It just we, I think we just didn't have any energy. So, you know, after we lost one game, one nothing, and, and that on, on that, that also. So, I think it's just one of those things where um, having that time off uh, away from the game, not worried about extra bad in practice and extra infield or anything like that. It was just great. So, I think that day off before we went to Boston was was perfect. We got about thirty-five seconds left, but I'm wondering that uh, whatever happened to the ball. I know there's been a lot of stories about the ball that went through Buckner's leg. Do you know where it is now? 
Um, someone just bought it for four hundred thousand dollars. That's all I know. <laughs> you know, so I don't know who has it, but um, you know, it's it's valued about four hundred thousand dollars right about now. So it'd be nice to know where it is. I know who don't have it. <laughs> I don't have it. <laughs> Mookie, I want to thank you very much. I've always enjoyed our conversation, and I read a line about you. It says, Mookie Wilson remained the exception, a man of humility and honor when it mattered the most. And I think that sums up your career as well as your life as well. You are welcome here anytime. Congratulations on the book. We're going to make it a selection of the month on the Sports Byline USA Book Corner. Come back and join us anytime. Man, thanks for having me again. Good luck to you. Mookie Wilson with us. He played 12 years in the major leagues, uh, most of those with the New York Mets, and, of course, won the World Series. What a uh, World Series that was against Boston. Game number six is the one that most fans will always remember when the ball went through first baseman Bill Buckner's legs and the winning run scored. We continue on Sports Byline. You have been listening to Ron Barr's Sports Byline USA podcast on the 8Side Network. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. In the 90s, New York detective Louis Scarcella locked up the worst criminals. Putting bad guys away. There's no feeling like it. Then jailhouse lawyers took aim, led by Derek Hamilton. Scarcella took me to the precinct and lied. 20 men eventually walked free. Now, in the Burden podcast, after a decade of silence, Louis Scarcella finally tells his story. And so does Derek Hamilton. Listen to The Burden on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.